check one, check two. All right, all right. Welcome to the Cannabis Coffee Hour with your host, me, Rob Cantrell. Oh man, I got a great episode, an exciting episode, a caffeinated episode. I got a special, special guest, the Tower of Power. I got him for maybe an hour, maybe less, but uh, he's one of my uh, favorite musicians, one of my favorite bands. If you love rock and roll, this is just, this is it. This is it, man. This is the, this is, this is the Budweiser, or I don't know, maybe a little bit better, Neil. But uh, I just want to say, uh, I'm a huge fan. Please give it up for Mr. Neil Fallon. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, how's it going, Neil? Good. Just uh, another day homeschooling terribly and uh, <laughs> getting ready to go to band practice after this. So there's some semblance of normalcy. So I can't complain about that, all things considered. All cons things considered. Yeah, that's a good gig, man. I mean, yeah, the homeschooling's uh, tricky. And then, um, but yeah, it then, then, but being in a band and doing kind of the yin and the yang of doing the family life, the dadding it up, and then going on and just rocking out has to be a great release with your friends that you've played with since you were 16, 17 years old? Uh, well, to answer that, yeah, I've known JP since seventh grade. Um, we usually ended up in homeroom together because my last name starts with F and his is G. <laughs> so that was the beginning of that friendship. Um, I didn't actually, I didn't know Tim in high school. I met him right after. Uh, but, you know, it is a thing to have. It's a great, you know, release and it's also a great escape you know just for our own head spaces just to make a racket uh even if it doesn't really have any goal other than just to make a racket uh and you know it's uh we're also fortunate that we could do the whole streaming thing to get us through this nonsense yeah um, yeah you know you try to look at the glasses being more than half full instead of the other way around that's where I'm at, Neil. That's 100% where I'm at. And I'm grateful be, to be alive. And I love hearing about your band. And I think that friendship is beautiful since the seventh grade. JP is your guitarist. And this dude, it, 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 audience, like their tone is so dope, man. The, his guitar tone uh, has a, a dis, has very, I mean, it's very, it's its own sound. He has his definitely his own voice with his guitar, as the whole band does. But uh, it, he's up there in terms of guitarists. I, I know it's hard to judge anybody, and I've been really trying not to compare people. But with Eddie Van Halen just passing away, like, what's JP's thoughts? What's the band's thoughts? I mean, that has to be pretty heavy, of a of a, a just of energy passing through. But JP's our drummer. Oh, JP. <laughs> sorry, sorry, man. John Paul is your drummer, and then the guitarist is Tim Salt. Right. That's correct. I am. I apologize to JP and Tim. I'm sorry. It's 11 a.m. and I haven't had a full cup of coffee yet, so I'm a little bit off, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. I understand. It happens to me all the time too. Um, yeah. You know, actually, I haven't seen the dude since uh, Eddie Van Halen passed. We had a couple, maybe about a week and a half away from each other because we all had family stuff that we needed to contend with and um you know i don't i know jp was a well tim i think liked van halen but i remember in junior high jp being in a couple high school bands where it was like you wanted to be in van halen and um learning those songs he had a uh he had a high school band and you know, we're talking, he's going to kill me for telling you this, but I think it was called speed. And I remember I wasn't in the band. I was, I hadn't even started playing music, but I remember them playing like Van Halen songs at a, at a, uh, you know, talent show. Yeah. And it's weird. Cause when you're that age and you think about guys in rock bands and you think, Oh, these guys are, are full adults and they were still probably in their twenties. And now I'm, you know, I'm going to be 49 in a couple of weeks and I'm looking at these guys saying, wow, they were so young you know, making that music. And they definitely, they definitely ruled the school. Now, that was the, when I got my first Walkman for Christmas, I guess it would have been Christmas of 83. 
I got two cassettes. I got Van Halen 1984 and I got Police Synchronicity. Nice. And I remember thinking how incredible the audio fidelity was on that piece of garbage Walkman. <laughs> was it the yellow one with the clip? Did it was it a sports Walkman or was it just a regular one with the foam? It was the first generation Walkman. It was like the big ticket item. Yeah. You know, the, the one big thing I got because it was, I think it was close to maybe a hundred bucks. It wasn't cheap, especially no. adjusting for inflation. It was like that. And then my aunts bought cassettes, which were much more reasonable. I guess they were probably $7.99 or something like that at the time. And uh, that 1984 album was so huge, man. And that was like, that was like up there with Thriller in my mind, remembering all that. That was such a big like jump. And those guys were just killing it and killing it and killing it. I mean, I won't talk about Van Halen forever, but uh, I just do love that energy. And I do like David Lee Roth of that era, just because he has a sense of comedy and showmanship. And I, yeah, I loved Eddie Van Halen's tone. And especially, you know, when I look back on the synthesizers, like the, kind of just leap they went with that I just dug you know there's something funky about that that 1984 album like you could play that and I was at a thing with Questlove was DJing and he was starting to play jump like he was spinning jump in between Bismarcky and all kinds of shit you know it just it, it has a certain tone that's uh beyond rock and roll it seems like like it can't be you know something cross over a lot to different genres you heard it it was everywhere you couldn't escape it he was in the mall at the county fair coming out of people's radios when you're at a red light you know the, and the school bus driver listening to it and there was always that one bad kid in junior high who was like oh maybe he's in eighth grade but really he should probably be enlisting in the military because he's been you know held back he's the kid with the mustache who always yeah. seemed to have a homemade van halen logo on his wrist yep he had some nunchucks yeah, yeah, throwing star in his wallet. Yep, uh, Soldier of Fortune magazine. He'd go up to the woods. He had some six packs of beer hidden. You hang my dude was Jeff Sherlock, and I was born in Washington D.C. in 1972. I grew up on Capitol Hill, and then we moved in fourth grade to Buena Vista, Virginia, which is four hours down south in the Appalachian Mountains, a town of seven thousand. And uh, but Jeff Sherlock was in this band called Nosferatu. And they were this thrash metal band. And he was the biggest badass. Like, there was a lot of hardcore rednecks. But this dude was the rough kid. Like, what was that movie? Remember that movie, Big Brother? Like, it was like, uh, no, it was big. It was, oh, My my Bodyguard. That's what I was thinking. You remember My Bodyguard? Vaguely. Vaguely. But no, this kid would beat up kids. Like, he was just a tough kid. But he was in this cool thrash band, Nosferatu. And uh, Metallica wears the shirt. He was in this, it was just early thrash and uh, nothing else matters. It says Nosferatu. But this dude ended up being a Marine and I'm pretty sure he killed people. <laughs> he, was a, he was a tough motherfucker, but I always liked him and he was always good. And I, I did go see their band. They played the little like chicken shack that was in town. And I went with my friends on my little BMX bikes, on my little, you know, ride bikes. We went down there and it was all ages. And they did Van Halen. The one guitarist was on the other guy's shoulder and they were rocking out. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's just uh, that metal. Uh, were you a metal kid? Like I, rem I remember all the metal kids, but because I was from DC, I had hip hop, I had go-go. I had, you know, I remember Chuck Brown. I went to RFK listening to all those funky beats. So I wasn't full into cheese metal when it popped off, but I kind of respected some of it. Well, you know, I was at an age where I wasn't old enough to see like the the classic golden age of DC hardcore. But when I finally got into music that wasn't on the radio and it, it, in hindsight, this was so stupid. And I think it was it was like this everywhere, both in the US and Europe it was like metal. You had to choose. You could go metal or punk rock or metal or hardcore. And you weren't supposed to hang out or like socialize. Yeah, I thought that was so whack. I remember that. So dumb. And so dumb. The arty crowd gets dumb that way. Sorry. Maybe because it was new and people were feeling protective about it or they just didn't know what the hell was going on. 
yeah for whatever reason, i fell into like the you know i heard black flag and bad brains or whatever when i was at that particular age like 15 or whatever so i didn't really get into metal until later on um i remember hearing like ride the lightning and kill them all i was like well dude this works too um and not and you know there was also what they call crossover which was sort of like another little invented genre with bands like dri or uh, the chromatic and i loved all that seven uh, seconds would you call that do, were those do you remember i might just kind of consider them like west coast you know punk rock um, yeah really fast i just remember them being so fast but yeah they weren't as technical as Metall metallica you were like shit man these dudes actually you know it felt like almost classic rock no i mean classical music i took violin when i was young and when i listened to metallica i was like whoever's that kurt guy that guitarist is just you know another level instrumental like orion it's it's beautiful music yeah you know you go into you know sanitarium and it's beautiful but in a different way uh did you ever go to commander salamander i did uh, <laughs> i don't really even think i was with like somebody and his older sister because she yep. wanted to get some panic or something yep or you know look at doc martens that she wasn't going to buy but i just thought it was a edgy thing to do you know when you're 14. When you're 14. And, uh, i do remember also our high school band i brought down uh two copies of a cassette demo and had i placed them in the they asked i asked smash records if they would sell them for us like on consignment and the, the goth chick behind the counter kind of rolled her eyes just like no <laughs> I think very quietly we walked and just kind of placed them in the cassette like rack uh, no price on it and we would go back there like every three four weeks and th there they stayed never <laughs> moved and i think either they finally got hip to it then one day they were gone i think they probably just ended up in a trash can but you know we thought that was a very edgy thing to do at the time yeah, man, that's DIY to its tilt. And you were right in the middle of DC. If anybody, I'm referencing some old DC stuff, uh, was uh, Commander Salamander. What I remember was like the punk kids. When punk happened, I remember Oi Oi being spray painted on the walls. And uh, my one friend like just turned punk rock one day. One day he just showed up punk rock. And, uh, but the, that scene never, I mean, I loved, Minor Threat and Fugazi. And I was big into Operation Ivy when that disc was being around that I, I was like, ah, oh, this shit's fucking great. But I remember that crowd, that punk crowd was violent. My friend got kicked in the face. I remember he was like 13, hanging out with some like hardcore DC punks. And uh, he got the shit kicked out of him, man. And he stopped being a punk rocker after that. Yeah, there was definitely an element, you know, of that. Yeah, I think they were genuine music fans that that's all they were into. But punk rock and metal, it also attracted, you know, kids that were, you know, falling in between the cracks. Maybe yeah. they had, you know, I think that was universal, no matter what city it was. You had kids with bad home lives or violent backgrounds, and they, they this was an avenue for them to let that out. And then that whole, like, D.C. versus New York versus Boston thing popped off which was also kind of silly in hindsight which is kind of gay like fraternity gangland mentality where you know this band is backed by these guys and this band is backed by these guys so let's have a show and beat the shit out of each other doesn't sound, that sound like fun <laughs> yeah that's how it was man i remember like you had to know you had to you know something might pop off and there was like yeah there was turf wars which is uh oh yeah i'm getting deep into meditations and stuff and once you start naming things they say the suffering happens and i think a lot of that is once you start putting things into a box and start separating things you know it's it's categorizing it's not the best sometimes it kind of kills it too i mean once once you give it a name it becomes static and, and the thing kind of becomes a thing of the past that people try to emulate for example wow. i think when nirvana was doing you know bleach or maybe writing their second album they were thinking oh we're a grunge band they never thought about it that way you know <laughs> and i don't think 
circumstance that like us sometimes get called stoner rock. We never thought of it that way. And usually the one hallmark that you're not a stoner rock band is that if you call yourself a stoner rock band. Yeah. You know, it's a, well, what are you doing? Are you, are you trying to just make music that comes from the heart or are you trying to emulate something that goes along with a fashion and a brand and all this and that? And usually those things kind of arrive DOA. Wow, man, uh, that's, that's so uh, enlightened, I believe. And I do think that, because you guys, I mean, Clutch is such an amazing band. And I, again, I, I appreciate you, Neil. It blows my mind even just talking to you. You know, it's just like, uh, I remember getting Elephant Riders at the Amoeba Record Store uh, in San Francisco when I first started stand up in 99. One of my friends that was like, just hipper than hip. I wasn't, uh, I mean, I wasn't an art kid. I was a goofball. I was into comedy and I liked hip hop and I liked good music. Uh, I think I had I had taste for music. My dad listened to opera. He listened to country. He listened. He made me play the violin. So I kind of got a lot of stuff. But uh, um, it's just uh, I, I think you, the clutch is just uh, oh the go go rhythms. That's what ha happened. I listened to I listened to uh, Elephant Rider and I was like, holy shit, man, where are these guys from? You know, because I didn't know you guys were from D.C. and your picture wasn't on the Elephant Riders thing. And you guys were like this cool band that I found about uh, organically. And then I looked up and I was like, oh, these guys all know about Go-Go. Like I could totally tell like there was a Go-Go influence there. Can you speak about a little bit about like, I guess you first encountering Go-Go and you guys have even played with like Trouble Funk and stuff. Yeah, we played with Rare Essence about two years ago. Uh, wow. You know, I wish what? I could go back to my 16-year-old self and say, yeah. this thing overnight scenario with Rare Essence, I would just call my future self a liar. <laughs> uh, like, like Van Halen back in, the, you know, 83, which was ubiquitous, you know, to people who aren't from Washington, D.C., but maybe bears a bit of explaining that, you couldn't escape it if you wanted to, particularly in the early to mid 80s. If you were into high school or junior high school, you heard it. Uh, students banging rhythms on the locker commons with their hands or drumsticks. You heard it on the radio. And it, we, it was every oh, marching bands, you know, playing up, you know, when you have like 30, 40 kids with drums and horns playing a uh, go-go, it's one of the best things ever. Go-go, if you're not in the mood for it, can be one of the most obnoxious things ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to have a good amount of buzz for it. it it's perfect for a DC summer. What's that? Go ahead. Hot, gotta be in a good mood. But yeah. if it's November and you got a headache and you just want quiet, it's not for you. Because no. the songs, go on forever and I always thought that like one of the reasons Go-Go maybe always stayed local is the songs were never radio length things <laughs> like The Butt by EU uh, and there was some Chuck Brown songs that you know maybe got a little far more traction outside of the area but most of the music was shared via uh, bootleg PA tapes and that's some of the best Go-Go albums are bootleg PA tapes that, you know, eventually became official albums like Junkyard Band Live at the Safari Club besides A, B, C, and D, and it has like four songs on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and da John Paul, he was a drummer in high school back in the 80s. So of course, you know, loved Go-Go, learned how to play Go-Go. He, he was in a heavy metal Go-Go band in the 80s called Hard as Nails. Oh, I so this like is, that name. It's nothing, it's nothing new to him. He's been doing this for, you know, 30, 35 years. Um, yeah. So, you know, love the music and it's very particular to DC. And um, I think that I always kind of look at Clutch as being defined by a, triangulate our positions with DC Go-Go, uh, DC Punk Rock and like Maryland, Virginia metal doom scene, you know. <laughs> Sester pentagram you take those three things and somewhere we're in the middle you know of that 
I can feel it, man. I, you are exactly right. And you're right on the middle and you guys have been putting it out. Uh, how many albums has it been now? Is it seven to 10 maybe? No, I think it's 12. Holy shit, man. Uh, your hard work, man. It's so inspiring. It's, um, yeah, I think bad book of bad decisions was our 12th LP. I don't really pay attention to that. I guess I should, but I think most creative folks of any, you know, nature are always looking to, once you finish something, you go on to the next thing. You don't look back. Uh, but That's we've, the best way to do it, man. Well, and I think we're clo pushing close to 70 releases at this point. Oh. Which I never imagine. Everybody, check it out on Spotify. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's easier now to make music. It's, you know, this laptop that I'm talking to you on, you know, we could do our next album on that. And 20 years ago, you're looking at the clock spending, you know, anywhere from 50 to $100 an hour if it's a cheap studio. Or if you're in New York, you're doing, you know, three to $400 an hour, losing your mind thinking, Christ, this <laughs> music is going to put me in debt for the rest of my life. So now we've got a lot of, you know, luxury with the digital age, just as long as, you know, you don't have to use every track, but I'm going off on a terrible tangent right now. No, you're not. You're making a hundred percent sense. And because uh, I do write comedy and I do do jokes and uh, I perform that the best is just to hit it and quit it, man, is just to not overthink, especially with art. Is uh, and that's what's kind of exciting with all this technology. Uh, the social media stuff is kind of <laughs> is scary, uh, but the artistic side with just being able to crank out art without overthinking it a little bit, and you don't have to rent a rehearsal space and you don't have to do all this stuff. A lot of times, it's, it's the space of creating art is the one thing like you need to lock down a space to do it, and then you need the technology, and now it's kind of gotten into everybody's hands. So there's really no excuse. Like everybody should be going for it. There's going to be a lot of bullshit out there, but I think the good stuff still rises. Yeah. I think people's taste, you know, it's like, it's a lot of things have never changed. I mean, you always, sometimes you hear these, oh, music's not what it used to be. And all you have to do is go on Sirius XM and listen to the fifties channel. And half of that stuff is unlistenable garbage. <laughs> I mean, really bad novelty songs, bubblegum, just saccharine sweet stuff. Of course, there's great stuff, you know, yeah. Chuck Berry, you know, what have you. Uh, so there's always, you know, it's, it's also subjective because this is music, what we're talking about. Somewhere in America or Europe right now, the, the next big metal band is writing their very first songs. And just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just, I don't, I'm not... I don't envy young bands because there's so much out there. And if you look at what streams, like if you look at the top 500 streams of, you know, any given day, rock and roll doesn't even, doesn't even rate there. It's dance music. It's Indian, uh, like Bollywood raga music. It's stuff we've never heard of. Uh, and it's good to kind of keep things in perspective. When, someone like myself thinks rock and roll is the center of the universe. Nah, not really, but it's <laughs> a little universe. So let's, let's treat it with kindness and respect. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm humbled that you're here and, and you've always carried yourself with humility in terms of, you know, being in a rock band is like this super ego thing. Like, this is me. I'm up here. Check me all out. The same thing with comedy. And there, I have seen it with other people like, the ego can get in the way of a lot of the stuff and, and tear you apart. How do you stay grounded? Is it just like being from DC, just doing what you, you know, you guys kind of keep it, you're doing this podcast. I mean, you are a man of the people, Neil. That's all I'm going to say. Well, you know, I think maybe that had to do a bit of upbringing, you know, from the blueprint. You know, my dad was in the Navy. So then oh, I, nice. I allowed to do shit, you know, like, I was given some leeway, but there was a lot of discipline in the house. And um, same, same. Yeah, it's, I wasn't, you know, and I did entertain doing the same thing myself, and I probably would have had not clutch become a thing. Uh, but I've met uh, musicians, and it's usually the front men, 
who are always on stage. And it's the most fucking obnoxious thing in the world. You know? <laughs> Shut up already. Okay. The show's over. Yeah. Dial it down. Um, it does feed ego. I mean, to get up in front of a crowd of people and stick your chest out requires a bit of confidence. But there are people who think it was like they really true are the second coming of Christ. And uh, I think we're all in the band. We all know there's on stage and off stage. And as soon as you're off stage, you're, you know, you're putting your pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. Um, yeah. It can't be the ego. I think sometimes that's, I've, and I've spoken about this in other interviews. One of the th reasons substance abuse is such a bad thing with uh, rock and roll is because the high one gets from doing a great show. You don't want that feeling to end after the set. Or alternatively, if you have a train wreck on stage, the low you feel is the worst thing in the world. So when you're doing night after night after night after night, it's, it's very hard to kind of get into a pattern of on and off stage. It's very easy to fall into always on stage, even if it's just internalized. But that's yeah, a lot easier for me too. But at 49, now kick your ass. Yeah, man, it's no joke. Uh, and the travel and the wear and tear on the body, it's the same thing with stand-up. It's super highs of highs. And uh, there's super lows and, uh, and the lows is bombing and you have to go through the bombing. It's kind of like this ego death process. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. There is uh, that, that high is so good. Performing live is such a gift. And there is a magical moment there. And I don't know what it is. I guess it's the adrenaline with the reaction of the energy of the crowd. But it's, yeah, it's, it's higher than, I remember Richard Pryor writing in his book saying, killing and doing stand-up comedy was better than cocaine and sex. <laughs> and I was like, this dude did a lot of sex and cocaine. So he knows what the fuck he's talking about. So, I mean, I think you know what, when you have that many amplifiers and that kick-ass of a band behind you, I'm just like, wow, that has to be a powerful, magical feeling up there. It is, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that music and you know, com your comedy, which is spoken word essentially, is, has a rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, comics pace their stuff out. So there's a music there. Um, when you get a room full of people or a festival and everyone sort of falls in sync with what you're doing, there's this kind of synchronicity that happens. And I think it's, it's primal. It goes back hundreds of thousands of years when people are all moving their heads to the same downbeat it becomes bigger than the band. It becomes bigger than the audience. It's like you're tapping into some kind of like human sacrament, you know, not to get too spacey, but you know, I, I do believe that. Um, other, and I, and also not to get too dark. I think sometimes when you get a dictator, uh, they experience that same kind of thrill. Yes. And they don't ever want to let go. Cause it's too, it just tastes too good. Yes. Um, the, the, but some, and usually they have to get taken off the stage, you know, by the bouncers. And you know, that's, that's yeah, or they runs its course and they crack out. Yeah. It, or they, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's something to, yeah, you see it happen. And uh, yeah, it's scary because it is such a, the whole fame thing is, uh, is a tricky, tricky thing, you know, with uh, the ego and uh, you start to expect, people to be special towards you. And that's a bad place to be when you start expecting people to treat you a certain way. It's because uh, not everybody knows what the fuck you're doing. They got their own drama going on. Exactly, you can't assume anything. I mean, it's one thing where, yeah, it's your show and you're surrounded by your fans and you kind of assume everyone knows what's up. Yeah. But you can't walk into the record store and be like, well, you know, how come I'm not getting acknowledged? It's <laughs> a shit. You know, um, I've met many, many brands of rock stars uh, over the years, and I've met the kind that are just insufferably uh, self-absorbed, or they won't even acknowledge you. That's yeah. fine. So I met the kind that just always want to be heard, that they're annoying. But, but by, for the most part, the, the veterans, the ones that have been around since the 70s or 80s, the, the older men and women who have been through the ringer 
are the most, most humble. Uh, maybe there was a period of time where they, they were like that, but everybody eats crow every once in a while. <laughs> you can learn from that lesson. You come, become a more well-rounded person. Uh, I met the biggest rock stars um, in the world, and they're just delightful, civilized people. And I've also met pe people in bands who, you know, have done like maybe half a dozen shows who just think they're the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. I'm confident, but you've got to temper it with some kind of reality. Yeah, man. It's a long gig. If you, if you want to keep doing it, it's a long ride and you're going to have ups and downs. I mean, even the great... James Brown, I remember hearing some gig like the crowd stopped going to James Brown, but he would still give this awesome show. And then when that Rocky movie came out again, they kind of pushed him out again in the 80s. The crowds just came back, but the people surrounded him said, no, he just kept on doing the same thing, you know? And, the, you know, you kind of go in the, with the ebb and flow if you really know about why you're doing it, I guess. Yeah, I think that most creative people have to do it otherwise yes. you just have whether that's people who paint have to paint and they may hate what they're doing but they're going to do it again the next day uh, i think what i always keep in mind that i have many friends whose creative impulse has to be relegated towards the weekends or after when they're done working because it's a hobby even as much as they would like to do it full time they just they haven't been able and i feel spoiled rotten you know, I have, this has been my one and only gig since 2000. <laughs> it's a long ass time. It's and a long ass time, man. You're super blessed uh, to keep doing what you guys are doing with the original lineup. I don't know many bands that have lat. maybe there's a handful that have lasted that long, but just keeping a friend that long is hard enough, <laughs> you know, cause everybody evolves and changes. And uh, yeah, man, uh, what I was going to talk about, what I wanted to ask about was uh, some of your influences and ideas of bands and some of the wormholes I've been down. And you, you know so much. I've been going down a humble pie wormhole. Do you know much about these cats? Yeah, the, the, the live at the Fillmore. Is that, is that what it's live at the Fillmore? Yeah, that album's incredible. I think Steve Marriott's one of the most underrated singers in rock and roll. He just was a, a force to be reckoned with and sung with such soul. He's a great guitar player too. Amazing. Uh, died tragically. Uh, very, very I, sad. But very sad. They, uh, you know, and did you know he was, um, he got his, from what I understand, he got his start in English theater uh, in a, early 60s the uh pr production of oliver twist and he was oliver from what i understand and he was sort of like a boy band of that time very cutesy you know pin up like girls loved him but then he went turned around and was in several bands in a, the best of which i think is humble pie uh but uh, not film, not live at the Fillmore. I'm having a brain for it. No, I think um, you're right. I think it's live at the Fillmore was because, uh, I, dude, I went on a, wor a wormhole with Steve Merritt. I don't know. I connected with him because I watched. If anybody wants to check out the Tin Whistle Test, uh, Black Coffee. Um, oh, that's amazing. That's like but, that's just sex. That just that pocket. That. Like when he gets into it, I'm like, holy shit, man! This is the real deal. Like. Uh, it is one of the funnest, coolest things. And he was a real blues guitarist and a real performer. And then I went into Small Faces. Did you ever go down and know about Small Faces? Yeah, they're great. Um, you know, not as maybe like his like classic rock as Humble Pie, but they have some great songs. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know as much about them as I do. Um, you know, the Humble Pie, I haven't listened to them as much as I have Humble Pie. I just, but they're great. Yeah, yeah, it's not as heavy, but and there's some, but uh, the lyrics really got to me. Uh, Ichiku Park, I think, is what it is, and he talks about just getting high with his friends in the park and how beautiful everything was and how overwhelming it was and how he started to cry. And I was like, oh man, I know that feeling. You know, reality is rough, 
but at the same time existence when you get to that point where you're just free and alone in nature you're just like holy shit man this is you know some 3d you know shit going on mm -hmm. yeah, there's and it's one of the cool things about youtube is in the internet is there's so much music out there that i never would have discovered um because of a and r representatives and, and jerky record store employees you know so you could go on and just watch these live performances or these this, this obscure tv show that you know you never would have seen or heard of and there's just so much gold out there there is man it is and it's, what's that that's what what's it called performance rock in the film or oh performing you got it performance rock everybody check out humble pie steve marriott it, it, he was a he was almost in the Rolling Stones, just to let the listeners know, which is kind of a cool story, was they auditioned him, but Mick Jagger was afraid of his charisma, like pretty much was like ex-nated, but he was a badass guitarist and he died smoking cigarettes in his bed. He fell asleep smoking cigarettes and he was just playing gigs. And there's a weird humble pie, like they were tied in with, his manager was tied in with the mob and they got ripped off and all this money, like it was, and he was, Coke, God, all those guys in the 70s. It's, it's hard to get through the 80s, any of these entertainers without getting into some cocaine drama. And I think he, he just couldn't get off the Coke and the booze and it just fucking, you know, ended kind of bad. Yeah, if I don't know the details of it, but the impression I get it was that his career was starting to slow down and there was a lot of alcohol going on and it's he hard. Just passed out smoking and died that way which is just so horrific um as we said the, the lows of the low man the, the, it's hard to get through that if you're there yeah 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 but to switch it up to more of a lighter thing uh yeah. i saw your riffraff thing i saw that riffraff video i loved it man you killed it it was fun, Do you know what i'm talking about this comedy video with the talk show yeah um two minutes to midnight it's, um, I honestly had never heard of it. And it's Shauna who works at um, Big Crunch Amplifiers in Baltimore, who's in the war on women is friends with them and said, hey, you wanna do this? And I was like, what? what you? And I checked it out, I was like, yeah, sure. I love ACDC and this show is pretty funny. Uh, great musicians and I it's a perfect, it's a perfect venue right now because everyone's doing these Zoom things. and they would have already, already kind of been in on that game as far as I understand. And it's just fun, you know, it's uh, just something to do. Yeah, man, uh, you killed it. Did you know Riff Raff? Did you know that tune? I did. Um, it was one of those ones that when I heard it, it, I realized it had been a long time since I've heard it. Um, it's, uh, he sounds wasted. If I, I really listened to it carefully uh, the first time, and Bon Scott just sounds like he went in there and did one take, and that was it. And, which is you are is usually the best ones. It's the best. Usually your first take, you know, you keep on trying and trying, and it just doesn't get as better than that. Uh, yeah, I never heard that tune, and then I, I, I did. I mean, I listened to that. I think it was on High Voltage, and I loved that album. I had it, but it just didn't pop up in my memory bank and then I went to it I was like oh my god this song's hilarious like early ACDC has got a good sense of humor oh your sound kind of tricked out on me a little bit okay is that better yeah that's better yeah, ACDC lyrics are often hilarious yeah um really really smart too and it's hard to, fit, to get those into songs and not sound like you're doing a, a novelty album yeah, I think Bon Scott had a very good sense of humor. Like he definitely had a stand-up vibe to me. What's the second singer? He's pretty funny too, but that, that Bon Scott was a goofball. You could just tell he was a goofy cat. Yeah, it, there's I, I, there's so many that are coming to mind right now. I'm kind of getting overloaded. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was you know it's barroom rock. You know, people were there to drink lagers and and laugh and you know just yep. forget about for a while and that translated 
to the arenas very easily. One of the coolest shows I ever saw that I had the chance. To, I've only seen ACDC once, but I got to see them. Uh, one of their more, re well, I guess it's probably about 10, 12 years ago, the Black Ice album tour, but they, I saw them play at the Sydney Olympic Stadium in Australia, and they played like six or seven nights. Every night was sold out with 60,000 people. My God. Here. 60,000 Aussies chanting oi. It just gives you goosebumps. It was one of the, the coolest concerts I've ever seen. And I, you know every single song for about two hours. Yeah. Just hit after hit up. Um, yeah, and to think that big of a venue doesn't get much bigger than that. It, it came from some weird backroom bar where they just killed it back in the day. And then they've just moved up I don't know what kind of paycheck you get for 60,000 people for six nights, but it's gotta be pretty good. But to come from just like such small beginnings to that, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it's, they, they always seem like a band that never lost that. They always seem like they could go back to shearing sheep if they had to. Um, yeah. That ever have to, of course, but there, there was humility there. I mean, I understand there's probably, you know, internal conflicts, but that's to be expected with any other band. Yes. And imagine to pull off with Back back in Black is <sighs> nothing sort of miraculous. You don't, you don't bounce back like that. And they did. And bit almost, I mean, bigger, like, yeah, it almost like was almost better. Like, not better. It, it was a different thing, but Back in Black is just a perfect, out. I mean, it's just, close to perfect and those riffs are like close to perfect and shook me all night long like it's got everything sex drugs and rock everything that you want in rock and roll it's got it man it was um it, there's some analogy i think sometimes when listen to those early acdc records and they're they're pretty raw and they're pretty punk in a lot of ways and it's a lot of bar room and there's they had their hits then they made that record and exploded I kind of see the same thing with Metallica when they did the Black Album. It was there was a, it was raw, great albums. You know, not necessarily the easiest thing to get on radio up until maybe Injustice for All. But then they did the Black Album. It was like, this is the same band, but something there's something new going on here. Um, yeah, it's almost like they grew up. Like it's just like the evolution of any artist. Like there comes a point where they get that soft, just that sweet spot. And uh, yeah, nothing else matters. I love that tune, even though every all the metalheads was like, these guys are pussing out, you know, they're not singing. I love that Garage Day Revisited. I like that album. I thought that was cool. Uh, but Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning are my two favorites. Just oh, shit. Listen to them incessantly in high school. Yeah, those are, they definitely have some raw power to them. <laughs> Master Puppets is no fucking joke. Uh, and I, I would, I, I, Neil, you've been too good. I'm going to get you out of here soon. I just want to touch on two things was just, uh, you guys signed, you talk about these big bands. I mean, you guys are a huge band. You guys signed with Atlantic Records, did you? Oh, For yeah. Your Rock Fury? What's that? Uh, well, let's see, they started on Atco East West, which became Atlantic. Uh, well, then we did Atlantic and then Columbia and then with Earth Rocker. I mean, excuse me, Earth Rocker, Jesus. <laughs> Elephant Riders. And then back, well, Pure Rock Fury to Atlantic, which we went, so we were signed, dropped from Atlantic, then came back several years later. It, in hindsight, you know, kind of wish we hadn't, hadn't been signed so quickly. Uh, I was particularly a babe in the woods. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I'd had no point of reference. You know, it was not like we were in bar, bar rooms for five, 10 years swing. It was happened be, primarily because Nirvana exploded. And then all these labels signed any band that remotely resembled it. And usually the case was in our instance, they gambled and they lost because we didn't give them a hit. And, we were always like, all we were looking for was tour support. And they gave us tour support and we were allowed to go, you know, open for Sepultura and Pantera and Iron Maiden and whomever. And that's kind of how we built the fan base. And then that whole world dried up for most 
not most, a lot of bands in the early 2000s with the advent of file sharing. Yeah. So we kind of had a, a sweet spot. We bet we developed a fan base and then it wasn't until people started swapping files that our show started getting bigger. It was as soon wow. as we stopped getting marketed and just people, word, it was like word of mouth on steroids. And it was a pretty, pretty good place to be at the time. That's cool, man. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely for the independent artists and I definitely think the DIY and just how the setup is just for bands and anything, when you start dealing with corporations, it gets really tricky when the numbers get big. Uh, but yeah, and you were from Maryland, like you guys weren't in the LA scene. You guys weren't an LA band. You weren't a New York band. You guys were dudes from Maryland that could kick ass. And yeah, that must have been really, yeah, it must have been a, uh, it must have felt awkward. I, I would say maybe even scary because signing with Atlantic, like they were, Led Zeppelin was on Atlantic, weren't they? Yeah. And this, wow. you know, this is the labels that were, were the patrons of, you know, big rock and roll, like, you know, from the late 60s until now. And, I remember going up very, you know, shit, I was like 19, 20 years old and going up to these offices and just seeing walls and walls and walls of platinum records. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I just had fun playing music and that's all I really knew. Uh, I was never attracted to the notion of using music as like for fame or fortune. I, I just want, I just knew that like if it were, could maintain that level of fun and better yet, just make enough money that we can continue doing as much shows as possible. Then I thought that would be success. And that's kind of how we still measure it. Uh, this is our gig. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad we were able to see those, you know, when we were signed, we never looked guys getting dropped as like some kind of tragedy, like a lot of bands, you know, tend to do. And to this day, and I don't get it, there's still a mentality that if you're not signed to a label, then somehow you're not successful. Like, why would you sign a multi-album contract with a record label? No one's buying records now, you dummy. <laughs> Here we are, you know, we'll say, we'll, sometimes we'll meet people at festivals, you know, where these bands get together and hobnob behind, you know, at their artist, you know, uh, area. And they say, who are you? Who are you signed to? We'll say, oh, we put out our own records. And you get this look on this face like, ooh, sorry about your loss. <laughs> Wait, no, it's, it's the other way around, man. It, uh... Yeah, it's all changing, Neil. I'm in comedy and I went through, I was on the very first last comic standing with three years of stand-up experience, no agent. I walked onto television. And then the next day I had every manager in the business on my phone and I was barely opening up at clubs and I went, yeah, I went through it and, and yeah, they get 15. So I signed with, you know, Dane Cook's management. I had the biggest dude, but they were taking like 25% and I still didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, they're just agents and managers. They're not creative people. So I still couldn't figure, it took me a long time. Once I got dropped, once I pushed away and kind of came back East, I, it kind of started, I started building my own up. And I just think now with the internet and YouTube and everything, like it's in our hands, like going to them, it's just like, it's, I don't know, it's a little bit of a sucker move. It's like trying to convince somebody to invest in the coal industry. <laughs> or, That's you know, hilarious. Steam engines, you know, I, yeah, it's still around, but you know, it's just this archaic mindset that's just, they don't want to change it because they're making money. I don't blame them. Yeah, I would. But artists, whether comedians or bands, we're replaceable to them. Yeah. You know, if someone leaves, they can get another one. But we can't replace this one life that we have and this one career that we have. So we have to make the most of it. And shit, if you get, if you get knocked down, you pick yourself back up because nothing worthwhile comes easy. No, nah. nothing at all, man. Uh, 
Neil, thank you for your time. I'll just do two quick questions and then I'll let you go. Morning ritual, what kind of, are you drinking coffee? You drink a kombucha, you're on green tea. What's Neil Fallon drinking in the morning? We're drinking coffee. Um, I got a new morning. We got a, like many families, we got ourselves a COVID puppy. Yeah. I, I gave to the begging for a puppy. And so, and I knew it was going to happen. And sure as shit, I'm the one walking it in the morning. So, <laughs> so it's a cup of coffee. Get the, get the dog out of the crate and go for a walk, which is actually great because I normally would not be walking at, you know, 7.30 a.m., but here, here we are. So that's my morning ritual. Oh, man, congrats on the puppy. That's a great vibe. And yeah, that's going to be good for the family. And I heard it blocks COVID, too. Some, I read something about the dog germs are going to block some COVID. So that's good for the fam. Uh, any specific coffee? I, I'm Today, I'm drinking some Peruvian coffee. I got this big ass bag from, uh, from Peru. It's, it says it's from Peru, but it was from uh, Costco. But I got like a pound and a half. What, what, kind of, what kind of beans are you fucking with, Neil? You know what's really good? And I'm having, if I knew you would ask me this, because it's been a while. It's, bear with me while I look this up <laughs> on my computer. Yeah, um, do it, my man. Because uh, it's awesome. I'm just having a, uh, God dang it. The, um, the 930 Club as a blend, and it's done by this local roaster, and I'm just, totally flaming out on it um you have to edit this one like a mug <laughs> no look, look it up i know what you're talking about look up 9 30 it's got a dc northeast yeah. dc blend a couple it's, got, it's, it's got some anacostia river in it it's got, yeah. it's got some it's got some uh rfk uh gravel um yeah rfk gravel it's got some mambo sauce. It's got some, what else references? You ever had a booey monger sandwich, my man? Yeah, I have. My wife was, when she was a dental assistant, there was a booey mongers across the street. So plenty of times. Are they still around? They had some good sandwiches back in the day, my man. I don't know if they've, they were for a long time, um, but uh, I don't know if they've made it through this. Story. Yeah, I don't know if they, yeah. I remember they had the upper Manhattan and it was like turkey. You could get the regular Manhattan, which was roast beef. But if you go upper Manhattan, it was, but it was good. It was like turkey, uh, I think cheddar, but then bacon and then like Russian dressing. And it was fucking slamming. And then it had uh, a, what's the beans? Vigilante coffee from Hyattsville. Oh yeah. Vigilante coffee, man. Uh, Death wish. I think they uh -huh. have. There's also Death Wish. We got plenty of that. I can't drink that stuff. Is that a real coffee? I was just, uh, I, was, I was referencing the movies. I, what, was the, what was the actor in Death Wish? Charles Bronson? Yeah, Charles Bronson was no joke, man. I, I, there's that brand Death Wish, and they gave us a bunch of K-Cups on tour, and I didn't know it was the most caffeinated coffee on planet Earth, and that's no, I'm not kidding you. And I downed, like, two cups before a show and I straight up had a panic attack like <laughs> all the songs all at once like try, like all the lyrics stacked up on top of each other it was like that scene in walk hard where they do blow for the first time and you're just not fast enough <laughs> as good as it's delicious as death wishes I, I just can't drink it but yeah vigilante coffees uh has some great coffee there from Hyattsville Great. Shout out to Vigilante Coffee. Neil approved. Where are you at with cannabis? I know Maryland is pretty much, is it fully legal in Maryland right now? Pretty much. That's um, what I've heard. You smell it all over the place. <laughs> um, I, you know, go down downtown Silver Spring, you think you're like at the, in Amsterdam. Love it. So it's, um, because every once in a while, I still scratch my, you know, I'll walk by after, you know, years of conditioning. Like, I'll see these kids, you know, teenagers smoke. I'm like, dude, you're going to get in trouble, man. You need to be more discreet. I'm like, oh, wait, that's right. So, um, yeah, Maryland's pretty wide open, as I think. Uh, I love uh, it. What was I? I was just reading that Mexico might completely nationalize legality of it 
which they'd be the biggest marijuana producers on planet earth um which would be insane but personally myself I love that <laughs> 90s were i was really into it these days i just i can't do it you know it's like you know, some people think mm -hmm. they just to a complete wreck that's that's kind of where I, what i've become and it you know i'm not like i don't scorn it now i just have to be honest with myself because i think people's brain chemistry changes as they as they age and um i just get so terribly paranoid you know if if i had smoked before this i would be convinced that rob Contrell's just a front for some kind of you know mind control operation <laughs> yeah it does overthinking things is not good and i've been doing all this meditation and i really think uh the now, you know, I'm on my Eckhart Tolle. I'm, I'm doing all, you know, I'm doing it all. But I do, for me, cannabis is uh, something that, uh, you know, I was drinking in bars in DC when I was 16. Like I was running booze up the flagpole way too early and smoking cigarettes and dipping. I was just a, you know, and uh, my liver just caught. And when I got into comedy, everybody started partying again. And I was like, I've done all this. But uh, with comedy, you don't get paid that much in the beginning, it, but you get free booze. So a lot of dudes just live off of the free booze and, you know, the liver just won't hold up. But if your liver, you know, every you got to know yourself, Neil, and you know yourself. And yeah, a couple IPAs at night, maybe some, some nice bourbon or Irish whiskey is good for you. Yeah, it's, um, it's the same in rock and roll. It's like, yeah. You may be Wednesday night, but for people in the crowd, it's Friday night and there's all you can drink for free. And that that'll catch up to you. And I've seen some I've seen some casualties because of that. And at this point in my life, can't afford that. I got too much responsibility. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. To clean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Neil, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh, your time and just and as an artist. I think you're amazing and, and inspiring and a great writer and just keep on doing what you're doing, man. I, I, I hope I can't wait to listen to the next clutch record. Me too. You need to start writing. <laughs> uh, give my love to Nate Bergman, our good friend. Do you see old Nate around? Um, I haven't seen him, but we, we text each other pretty regularly. It, it's uh, that's um filthy texts which i hope to god they never see the light of day but he's a funny dude that guy he's I've known funny he was old yeah those kids have been good to me I, I like the lion eyes crew and nate's been good to me and uh now he lives in my old neighborhood in capitol hill so i'll run into him when i go visit like my mom and stuff like that well my mom's not my mom just moved just recently but when i did the last few years i'd run into nate and uh smoke a joint with them and hang out and get a sandwich yeah they're good people those guys yeah. You're good people, Neil. I appreciate it, man. Have an awesome day. You too, Rob. Thanks. Yeah. Yep. Peace, love. Yeah. Rock on. <laughs>